Good morning. Hope you all are doing well. Happy Labor Day weekend. I guess that's what you say on Labor Day weekend. Happy Labor Day weekend. Anyway, um, I was told um, that I, because of our passage this morning, I got to get situated. Hang on a second. There. Um, because of our passage this morning, I'm supposed to go really long so you understand uh, the meaning of this passage. But I'm going to try not to do that. I can promise you that you're probably going to be hungry by the time we get out of here. Um, that's part of our verse. But um, another reason is because that's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start talking about food. Um, I think we all love food. We all love to eat food. And um, anybody admit that sometimes you go to places that maybe eat too much, kind of leave, ugh, you know, blessings are all about, you know, in your stomach. Um, so when I was at SBU many moons ago, um, about once or twice a semester, me and a group of guys, we would decide that we were going to make the venture journey to Ozark, Missouri to eat at Lambert's. And, and so as a, as a college student, you know, you set aside about 20, 25 bucks um, to, to go, and we had a plan. Every time we decided, hey, this is the week we're going to go to Lambert's, I understand there are people here like, oh, why Lambert's, you know, because um, maybe you think there's other places that are good to eat. But for a college student, when all you eat is cafeteria food every single day for the entire week, Lambert's is like the Mount Everest, right? And so um, we would make a plan, and this was our plan. You wake up, and you have a very light breakfast, okay? Uh, enough that you're, you're, you're not necessarily full, but enough that you don't get a headache and you don't feel lethargic for the, the rest of the day. So a very light breakfast. You skip lunch. Okay, this is the plan. You got to skip lunch because we're going to go, you know, mid-afternoon to Lambert so we can beat all the crazies that get there to come off the highway. And we're going to get there before the rush and we won't have to wait very long. And so we would make our way to Lambert's and we would go and we would order food. And at that time, I don't know if they still do it anymore, um, but at that time, if you finished everything or you finished something, like the waiter would come around and be, hey, do you, would you like another helping of that? And so, of course, that's what you do. You did another helping. And you did all the fixings. You catch all the throat rolls. And you eat to the point you are just completely miserable. Um, and so we would walk out. And you would just walk out, you know, that, like, that walk that you can't really move. And the other part of going to Lambert's is because we needed time to digest. It was not safe for us to drive. We were like food drunk. And so we would go to the Palace Theater. Anybody remember the Palace? And oh, $2.50, $3 for a movie ticket. And so we didn't really care what movie it was. Um, we would just all go to the same movie. And of course, it's guys, so you got to put a seat in between you when you go to the movies. But your feet would stick to the floor. And the whole purpose wasn't even to watch the movie. It was just to you know, digest and try to get as comfortable as you possibly could. Y'all ever been there? You just, you just went a little too far on the food. Um, the last time I did this was on our vacation. And because um, SBU was like, you know, almost 20 years ago. So I, I don't make plans for vacation. I'm a planner. I, I like to have a plan. I like to know what's going to happen. You know, I have my whole week typically planned out and how that's going to work. So having Monday off is going to throw me off for the week. But anyway, I don't make plans for vacation except for a couple things. Go to the beach because we go with Jamie's folks down to like the Gulf Shore area. And so I want to go to the beach and I want to eat good seafood at least twice, three times would be nice. Um, 
And so leading up to the beach, several months, Ethan and I were, were building our plan because there's one restaurant we like to go to because um, they serve fried clams. And we haven't been able to find them anywhere else except at this restaurant. So we have to go to at least this restaurant one time. And we wanted to kick off the vacation by going to eat fried clams. Not just fried clams. All you can eat fried clams. So, oh man, it was. <laughs> um, so, you know, a couple years ago, I could beat Ethan at running. I could, you know, I, I could top him. I'm getting to that age in my life, and he's in an age in his life where he's starting to do things better than me. Like if we go run together, it's typically just that we're running at the same time. And I say, you just go, and then we'll just meet back at the house. I'm happy to say I beat him eating fried clams. I took that boy down. Uh, he only had two and a half plates. I had three. Matter of fact, anytime the waitress came and brought a plate, I would just say, just go ahead and get the other one coming. Because if you got to have a strategy when you eat a lot of food. You cannot take a break, right? You don't drink a whole lot of water, and you can't take a break because then your stomach starts to tell your mind you're full. So you got to keep it going. Well, it got to the point that the waitress didn't even ask me the next time she came if I wanted more clams. She asked if I wanted dessert. Um, it's like she was, she cut me off. <laughs> so, and I kind of looked at Jamie, I said, after she left, I didn't do it while she was there. I said, of course I want dessert. I want more fried clams. That's what I paid for. Well, we had a couple hours before we get into the place we were staying. And so you had to spend that time doing something. And so the plan was we were going to walk around, which is not good <laughs> when you have three full plates of fried clams in the middle of a heat advisory at the beach. And so you all heard of meat sweats? Yeah, I had fried clam sweats. I was, uh, I, was, I was walking, and I was miserable, and they wanted to go get ice cream, so I guess Ethan did, in fact, win, because I was like, uh, I will die if I eat ice cream. But um, that idea of just gorging ourselves on food, um, that, that's going to help us understand the beatitude we're looking at this morning. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, and our, our beatitude is this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to walk through this verse, and we're going to begin by understanding what is righteousness, so we know what we are to be hungering and thirsting for. So the simplest way to define righteousness is what is right and pleasing to God. That's the simplest definition of righteousness. But we need to dive into the depths of righteousness. Because the Bible very bluntly tells us that we are not born, nor are we naturally righteous. In Romans chapter 3, the Bible says no one is righteous. No, not one. So we're not naturally righteous. We're not born righteous. And yet at the same time, we're supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness, which creates a dilemma. So where do we begin when we're hungering and thirsting for this thing of righteousness, of being right with God and being pleasing to God? The Bible says in Psalm 119, righteous are you, O Lord, and rich are your rules. In Deuteronomy 32, it says, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And the word just and justice, particularly in the Old Testament, is synonymous with righteousness. The Bible says in Psalm 97, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, Psalm 147 says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. And Jeremiah 
uh, quotes one of the Psalms when he says, righteous are you, O Lord. So here's the thing. In understanding the hunger and thirst for righteous, we have to understand this. Only God is righteous. Only God is righteous. And therefore, our hungering and thirsting for righteousness means that we have to hunger and thirst for God. Now, when Jesus gave this sermon, in particular came to this verse, his audience was primarily Jewish, if not all Jewish. And so they would understand the idea of righteousness means about conforming to the law of God. Their mind would immediately have gone there that, okay, if I'm going to be righteous and if I'm going to hunger and thirst for this, then I need to be hungering and thirsting for the law of God because that reveals God's holiness and his righteousness. It reveals his holy standards that he's given to his people. The law also reveals not only to Jesus' audience, but to us, that we all fall short of God's holiness and his righteousness. And for Jew, the Jewish audience, when they think of the law, primarily they think of the first five books known as the Torah or the Pentateuch, but then it became the entire Old Testament revealed how God works throughout history and works in his people's lives and how he brings judgment and brings uh, discipline upon his people because they aren't living righteously. But when we're called to hunger and thirst for righteousness, it is calling us to a certain expectation. It's complete conformity to the law of God. Now, if we go backwards into the book of Matthew, we see that Joseph was defined as a just man. That word just, again, is synonymous with righteous. And the reason Joseph was defined that way is because his life conformed to the law of God. He was not perfect. He still needed a savior, but he did his very best to live by God's word and allow that to direct his life. So when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're hungering and thirsting for the kingdom of God to be evident in our life, and our life would be conforming to God's word and his will so much that we are always pursuing after that. We long to be in God's favor, and the only way we can be in God's favor is if we are in God's word. If we are living out God's will. And so when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, here's what it does. It eliminates the grounds for self-righteousness. Self-righteousness believes in this moral or spiritual superiority. That I'm better than someone else because I'm doing this or I'm not doing that. But if I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness then I can't be self-righteous because no matter what righteous deeds I do, when I compare it to God's word, it doesn't measure up. It doesn't match completely. I still see that there are places in my life I'm going to fall short. You know, the Apostle Paul had to deal with self-righteousness when he wrote to the Corinthian believers. He said, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And the word commends there in 1 Corinthians means to prove or to hold. See, God wants us to know that when it comes to righteousness, we have nothing we can prove to him. And we have nothing of ourselves that we can hold on to that declares our own righteousness. Even if we have this list, and, and Christians are really good about putting lists together about, okay, this is what you do, and this is what you don't do. I mean, we, that's kind of how we train our kids as parents, right? Don't do that. That's not right. God wouldn't want you to do that. The reality is, even with the best list, we would still fall short. Matter of fact, Paul understood when I look into the perfect law of God, what it reveals is that I have a sinful nature because I wouldn't know what coveting is if the law didn't tell me not to covet. I wouldn't know what, what I shouldn't do if it wasn't for the law, but then I realized, oh, that's what I'm actually doing. 
Paul continued to wrestle with his unrighteousness. And so we are called to hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is to seek after God through his word. But we do it with the understanding that we will never fully arrive to the place of righteousness, which the word of God is taking us. So we are to live in obedience, which leads to righteousness, Romans chapter 6, and calls us as believers to become slaves of righteousness, which means we become slaves of God. Now, the word about, thing about slaves is obviously in our culture has a very derogatory term, right? Um, we don't call people slaves anymore, and um, you know, people have gotten in trouble in the past couple of weeks for using certain words that kind of go along with that time period. So we need to understand when the Bible says we are to be slaves of God and be slaves of righteousness, we need to understand the context to which the word slave comes from in the Bible. Paul uses that phrase a lot in Romans. Now, a slave in biblical times, in Paul's time, didn't necessarily mean that they were whipped or beaten or anything like that. I mean, that did happen. History proves that it has happened, but that wasn't the majority of the case. To become a slave in, in the Bible times meant that you were at your wit's end. You were out of resources. You had no money to feed yourself or your family. You had either already lost your house or you were on the verge of losing your house. You had no resources of your own. You were basically at a place where we would call you were bankrupt. You were living in poverty. And so in that day, instead of going to the government and getting some sort of aid, what an individual would do in order to survive is they would sell themselves to a master. And so they would go to a person of wealth and they would say, look, I, this is where I am. I want to sell myself to you. I want to come into your service. And what the master would do is they would buy the person and the family and they would become their slaves. They would bring them into the household and they would have rights within the household. As a slave in Bible times, you could go about, you had freedoms, you could buy stuff, but the master would buy them and not only buy them, he would take on their debt. And so they would be a slave to the master because the master purchased them and purchased their debt in full. And so they worked to work off that debt. And so that's what a slave is. And so our slave to righteousness means that we understand we have a debt that has been paid in full by Christ. The only thing we can't go to is we cannot work to pay off our debt. We can't do that. We can't earn what Christ has done for us because the, the payment of our debt, which is sin, can only be paid by death. And so we're not working our righteousness. And we're not doing things as slaves of righteousness to prove or earn salvation, but instead to say we understand the incredible price that was paid, that Jesus Christ, God himself, took us into his household, made us free in Christ, and now our debt of sin has been completely paid in full. And so now we look to God and we pursue after God because of this incredible gift that he has given us. But then we come to another dilemma. Because our pursuit after God isn't actually what makes us righteous. And so what are we going to do? How do we become righteous? We have to look to Christ. Only God is righteous. We know we are not. 
And therefore, we must hunger and thirst not only for God, we must hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ. The Bible says and reveals to us, God's word, we are all unrighteous. We do things that are not pleasing to God. We do things outside of God's will. We still wrestle with sin. And God knows that we all will try to present ourselves as being righteous. Who here hasn't been tempted to say, well, at least I'm not doing that. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I would never do those sort of things. But then this would take us back to boasting in ourselves, which we already looked at. The Bible does not condone. So the righteousness we are to pursue begins by getting into God's word and then pursuing the righteousness that Christ offers us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we're not only pursuing after righteousness, but we are to be found in righteousness before God, which only comes by this, by faith alone in Jesus Christ. I have nothing to boast before God. I have nothing to bring to God that he would be like, oh, wow, that's really good. I mean, he's our heavenly father, but he doesn't give us a sticker simply because we're living by his word. The only way I can come to God is because I'm covered completely by God's son, Jesus Christ, and his righteousness. The Bible says in Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So we pursue after God because he is righteous and we do that through his word. And the only conclusion when we pursue after God in his word is, you know what? I don't fit here. I don't match what is going on and what God is commanding me to do. I come to a realization I am not righteous. And so that then brings us, because this is what the word of God is meant to do, brings us to Christ who is completely righteous because he's the key that we're missing. So if you're here this morning and you have not accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you are still in unrighteousness. You are not saved. You are not forgiven. You are not promised eternal life in heaven. And there's nothing you can do to change that, but that's why Jesus Christ came. He died for our unrighteousness. And when we place our faith completely in him, the Bible says we are now clothed in the perfect, complete, and holy righteousness of Christ. Just think about that for a second. Simply by saying, I believe that God loves me, I understand that I'm a sinner. I believe that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sin, and he did, and he rose again, and I'm placing my faith in that, not in myself, not what I can do, but my faith is in Christ alone. God then covers our unrighteousness with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that's all he sees in you now. Praise God, because I know what a mess I am. I know the things I struggle with. I know the things that bring me to my knees and in tears and repenting before God. And God, even though he, whoa, sorry, even though he knows that, he only sees me in his son's righteousness. The New Testament commands us over and over again in multiple books or letters that we are to put on Christ, which only comes by faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, the salvation of our souls, and then the clothing of the perfect righteousness of Christ to cover us. 
Jesus would later say in this sermon, actually it's in this chapter, it's in verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we can read that, but not understanding the context of his audience, we wouldn't understand what his audience would do in hearing that. Again, primarily Jewish people. So the Pharisees and scribes in this culture, they were the epitome of righteousness. I mean, they were self-righteous. <laughs> they would know the law of God, interpret the law of God, teach the law of God to God's people so they could adhere to the law of God. And when people saw the Pharisees and scribes, they thought they were looking at complete righteousness walking before them. That's how we need to live. And so when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds these guys, you're never getting into heaven. His audience jaws would have dropped impossible they can't do that they, they've trained their whole life to be righteous and that's exactly what jesus wanted them to understand you can look righteous you can be perceived as righteous people may even think you're righteous but unless you have christ you're not you're still unrighteous it is impossible and so you need christ's righteousness to cover you and that's how you get in. So what this means is so we can read the Bible. We can even take the Bible and we can apply parts of the Bible to our life. But unless we're found in the righteousness of Christ, we're still unrighteous. Put this in perspective. You could go to church. You may think this is a great book. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. There's some stuff in there I don't understand and stuff I don't like, but... There's a lot of good stuff, cool stories. And you could take some of the principles of the Bible and you could apply it to your life, you know, take care of the poor and the needy and watch out for those who are, you know, outcasts of society and, you know, do good things in society and be a good representative. And you can do all that stuff, all the right things. But if you're not found in Christ, even though you may read the word of God, even though you may apply part of it, if you're not found in Christ, you're still unrighteous because the word of God is meant to point us to our unrighteousness and our need for Christ. And then it shows us how we can have him and how we can be found in him and how we can be clothed by him. Paul understood this and was led by the Spirit to write in Philippians chapter 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. And here's where we're going to do a little doctrine issues. When we come to faith in Christ, and we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are not only declared righteous before God because we're now clothed in his righteousness, but the Bible throws out this other cool word that all Christians should know. The word is justification. When I come to faith in Christ, when we come to faith in Christ, we become justified. 
The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. That's speaking of Adam's sin. Now that we, we all have been condemned because we have the sinful nature inside us. We have the unrighteousness. So one act of righteousness, which is the act of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And justification is a term concerning how believers are now declared to be in the right or righteous before God by their faith in Jesus Christ. It was a legal term in Paul's day that he's pulling to apply to salvation. That now that I'm in Christ, my sin, my unrighteousness has been completely wiped out. My ledger is clean. It has been eradicated. The word justification in the common Greek or justify, they're forensic terms. They relate to the, the world of the courts. It was an act of acquitting or vindicating someone. The easiest way to remember it is just as if I never sinned. So even though I may wrestle with sin, my faith in Christ, God sees me just as if it never happened because Christ's sacrifice and resurrection has now made all my sins as far as the east is from the west in the eyes of God. I'm no longer found in them. I am justified. And so Martin Luther in the Reformation came to this understanding as, as people were trying to preach, do this and do that and don't do that and do, and you know, all this stuff. He came to this understanding as he looked into the word of God idea is sola fide, which means by faith alone. It was focused on this truth of justification. And it goes that sinfulness of all persons, their total inability to deal effectively with their own sin, and then the gracious provision through the death of Jesus Christ as a complete atonement for sin to which persons respond in simple trust without any special claims or merit of their own. So by my faith in Christ, get this, my understanding God is righteous, I'm not. My faith in Christ, now I'm covered in Christ's righteousness, and before the eyes of God, I'm completely justified of every wrong I've ever done and ever will do. God is good. That is amazing. And so if God did that for us because of our faith in Christ, and the question now is, why do we still need to hunger and thirst for it? If I'm already righteous, I'm already justified, why am I still called to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, we're commanded to present your members as slaves to righteousness through sanctification. And the Word of God says that God's will for our life is sanctification. Now, sanctification is taken primarily from an Old Testament God's people were called out. They were freed from slavery to be set apart, which is what sanctification means. It's set apart for a specific purpose. It's also taken from temple worship. There would be material uh, possessions, material things that were set apart for specific purposes in the temple. And so they were set apart to be holy and to be used in that way. When we come to Christ, we are given Christ's righteousness we're justified before God, we're reconciled to him, we're redeemed from all of our sin, all because of the sacrifice of Christ and our faith in it, and then we're sanctified by God, set apart by him in this life. But the thing about sanctification, it happens at salvation, but it is also a continual act within the life of a believer. 
meaning we are to be continually being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit, continually set apart in this world through the sanctification by the Spirit, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and of the Spirit, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. So to hunger and thirst for righteousness is a continual growing in righteousness. This beatitude is calling us and commanding us to never cease in pursuing after the things of God and conforming our lives to his will. The word hunger, hunger and thirst for righteousness. The word hunger is to paint an image of an individual who is starving so much they're on the brink of death. The word thirst for righteousness is to paint a picture of an individual who would die if they did not get a drink of water. So when we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, it means that this pursuit of God, this living for God and being sanctified by God is to be as much a natural instinct of ours as God's people as it is to have a drink of water or to have a bite to eat. So every time your stomach reminds you, hey, I need some food, use that as a reminder that, hey, I need to be pursuing after God. I need to be hungry for him, thirsting for him. It's saying that God and Christ and the Spirit is to be our most intense desire in this Nothing else will satisfy it like he does. There's times at our house, you know, when I, I know some, who, who's all grilling so I know where to come this weekend? The cannons at least. All right. <laughs> um, so there's times when, when I grill, I grill like for the weekend. I don't want to like, you know, start it up again and, and all that. I do have propane now though. So um, Anyway, so we'll grill a lot of food and, and that's what I did. Uh, this this last week, um, and I'm gonna do it again. And, and I and I cook some stuff, and so there's stuff in the fridge, right? There's stuff to eat. Well, yesterday Ethan had his first cross country meet, and we had stuff at home we could eat, stuff that's already paid for. But one thing we like to do is let Ethan pick where we're going to go eat after his meet, and so he told us where he wanted to go. And, and even though we could, we went home, we went home, <laughs> and there was food there. Because Ethan put this thought in our head about this other place to eat. That's all we could think about. We were craving it. And even the food was good. That's all we wanted now. This is the image of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Is yes, the world can give us stuff. But now that we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that's all we want. That's all we're craving. That's all that will fulfill us. God, Jesus, and the spiritual righteousness in our life is all we want, and we now know nothing else would do. He is the only thing that we should long for because nothing in this world can bring our soul the satisfaction as his presence, the satisfaction of his word and living in that. The phrase for righteousness, it might seem like it's a phrase to say, okay, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. But in the Greek, it's a different thing. It's a a phrase which is saying, I don't just want to know God. It's a phrase meaning, I I don't just want to be saved. I don't just want eternal life, even though that's how we get righteousness, is all those things. 
But when it says we hunger and thirst for righteousness, what the, the Greek is meaning, which in the New Testament, that's what it's written in, is saying that I want all of it. And I continually want it all. God is saying we will be blessed when we get greedy and gorge ourselves on him. We should get the Savior sweats, right? We've had so much Jesus, that's all that's, all that's coming out of us, is Jesus. And so when it says for righteousness, it means that we have this constant craving and longing for the whole complete righteousness of Christ and wanting to understand it more and wanting to live in it better. William Barclay writes that this beatitude says, it is not enough to be satisfied with partial goodness. Blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts for the goodness which is total. So then the translation of the fourth beatitude could run, oh, the bliss of the man who longs for total righteousness as a starving man longs for food and a man perishing of thirst longs for water for that man will be truly satisfied. And that word satisfied that means to be filled completely. I hate going to restaurants and paying for food and leave like, man, I got to go get something else to eat. Anybody else hate that? Well, God says when we hunger and thirst for him and Jesus' presence and his word and the presence of the spirit, we will always be satisfied. And who satisfies us? If we continually hunger for the bread of life, we continually thirst for the living water, the promise of this beatitude is we will never be left wanting or lacking. God is calling us to have a hearty appetite for him, to gorge ourselves on the Almighty. Because now we know self-righteousness won't do. We know that this world, even with all of its pleasures, will never suffice. The only thing that's going to satisfy our deepest cravings is God. Only him. That's why we're called to, to be blessed while we hunger and thirst after him and then find satisfaction. So this leads us to three questions we must ponder as we wrap up. Throw them on up there, Ethan. How have our cravings been for the things of God? How bad do we want and long for the things of God? And has something or someone been distracting us or promising us a false satisfaction that only God can give? You think the enemy wants you to be satisfied? Sin will never satisfy. We have to go after it again and again and again. But God says, I come after him and find satisfaction. We will be filled. So, in looking at these questions, you may already say, oh, I already know the answers to those and they're not where they should be. And this is the beauty of God's goodness and his mercy. Because if you're his child, the reason we come to that understanding, wow, I'm not, I'm not doing that right, 
is because God is bringing us to this place of a newer understanding to convict us so we might come to repentance. That means to make a change in our life. If we're pursuing after anything more than we're pursuing after God and hungering and thirsting after anything more than God, that's got to change. You will never be satisfied. Never. But then maybe you're here and just going through these passages of Scripture, you come to the understanding you're trying to be a self-righteous person. You're trying to say, well, you know, God is going to let me into heaven because I'm a good person. Right? I've done good things. Or maybe you're even a member at a church. And so we try to prove ourselves to God by the things we've done, and God just looks at us and like, no, it's not going to cut it. Jesus said very clearly, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So nothing we can bring before God will earn eternal life. No good deed we can do will earn eternal life because we're all unrighteous. And you may be here in this moment and realize, you know what, I'm, I'm still unrighteous. I am not found in Christ because he is not my Lord and Savior. And God brings you to this moment to change that to be declared righteous, clothed in righteous, justified, sanctified, redeemed, reconciled, all of it. And it can happen in this one moment. The Bible says when we admit that we are a sinner, we, we do things that are not right, things that we're not proud of. And we admit that not to a, past, a pastor or a priest, but we admit that to God. And we believe in our heart that God sent his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins, and he did, and he rose again. The Bible says when we believe that, then the next thing we have to do is we have to confess it. We confess to God we're a sinner. We confess we believe what God did for us through Jesus Christ, and we confess it, make it a public announcement that we want to be saved and forgiven for all of our sins and be given eternal life. And so this is why we come to the moment of invitation. If you're here and you're not in Christ, that can change simply by walking down the aisle and say, Pastor Mike, I believe, I want to be saved, I'll pray with you, we'll celebrate. So I'm going to invite Nick to come up and lead us in a song. And if that's you, I'm going to invite you to come down. But maybe you're here and you're like me as I deal with the passage of Scripture and God reveals my own unrighteous deeds and my own things that I pursue after that are not him, that those things have to change. Because God is continuing to want to sanctify me, to set me apart just as much as he does you. So we come this time of invitation, it's time of response. We're going to pray together. And then I'm going to invite you to come down. If you need to kneel before the Father or you need to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, I'm going to invite you to come. But let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for everything you've done for us. We are so unworthy. I, I just echo the words of Paul. I feel like the worst of sinners at times. But by your grace and your mercy... Your great power and authority, you have forgiven me. You declared me your own. You've given me gifts that I do not deserve. Father, is anyone here this morning has not accepted you, Lord, I pray that the Spirit would speak to their heart, that they understand that, their eyes would be open to see it, and they would respond to you calling out to them. But Lord, we wrestle in this world. Things are pulling our hearts and our attentions in all different directions. Father, let us crave for you. As the deer pants for streams of living water, let us pant for you. 
Thank you so much, Lord, for the promises you give us. When we pursue after you, we'll never be lacking. Forgive me if I failed you in any way. Be at this time and let us not just be hearers of your word, but doers who respond to it. We praise all in the name of Jesus Christ.